Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33 this morning. Today we're going to consider together what is the epilogue of the book of the covenant, which we covered mostly last week as we looked at all of those miscellaneous laws. Our main idea this morning is this, God guards his people and guarantees their triumph when they persevere in faith. And as we unpack the text, I want you to consider two questions. Who is the angel and how is his victory shared in? Who is the angel and how is his victory shared in? Let's pray and then I'll put some of my cards out on the table and we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we ask for you to be our help this morning, that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we might understand what it is uh, you intend to communicate to us through this text. Father, focus our minds, uh, give us clarity of thought, and help us to truly commune with you and with one another during this time. Allow your word to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to put my cards on the table here as it relates to those two questions, I believe that the angel of the Lord in our text is God the Son manifest previous to his incarnation. More simply, I believe that the angel of the Lord who shows up throughout the Old Testament is Jesus before he becomes a man. Quick caveat, even if I am wrong on this interpretation, and there are those who disagree with me, at a very minimum, at the very least, this angel before us in Exodus 23 this morning points us to Christ. But it is my argument that he actually is Christ before he takes on flesh. And I'm going to try to show you that as we work through the text. With that in mind, let's look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his word and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now right away we see, and we will continue to see throughout this pericope, that the angel is closely identified with Yahweh himself. So much so that the two are interchangeable. If you look back, it says, if you carefully obey his voice, that's the angel voice, and do all that I say, that's God, right? They're being one and the same. And that blurring, that lack of distinction between the two is carried on throughout this entire section. And it is the first reason we have here that we should understand, I'm arguing, that the angel of the Lord should be seen as Jesus before he became human. It's because the angel is described in ways that identify him with and as God. This isn't the first time it's happened in Exodus either, though it is the first time I'm pointing it out. We also see him show up in a flame of fire within the burning bush back in verse 2 of chapter 3, the angel's there. And he's also involved in Israel's redemption as they're coming out of Egypt. He moves along with the cloud that was leading them to protect them from the Egyptian army when they're camped out there before they go across the Red Sea. Additionally, his mysterious appearings are not just limited to Exodus. Right? We came across him way back when we studied, studied Judges chapter 2 and Judges 13. 
He also shows up in Joshua 5 and Genesis 18, and as I told you in Psalm 34 earlier. But every time he, he shows up, he is indeed surrounded by this kind of tension. And his identity seems to be shrouded in a bit of a shadow. Tim Keller comments, It really is remarkable. This figure is the angel of the Lord, and yet also the Lord. What does this mean? This is one of the mysteries of the Old Testament, which is impossible to understand without the new. If there is one God, how can he be both in heaven, having sent this visible figure, and at the same time be the visible figure? If this was simply God come in angelic form, why doesn't it just say that he is the Lord, rather than also one who is sent by the Lord? The word angel at the end of the day means messenger after all. The only explanation that makes sense is that we have here an indication that our one God is nonetheless multipersonal. We have before us a deep hint at the Trinity. And there is good reason to see the figure as God the Son whose concern even at this point in Israel's life is bringing salvation and peace to his people. Angel is closely identified with God, and I hope that you keep that in mind as we work through the section. We also see that his task is protecting God's people and bringing them into a place prepared for them in fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham long ago. And I think that this task of the angel also tips us off to his identity. Likewise, Jesus is sent to guard God's people and take them to a place prepared. In John 10, Jesus speaks about guarding God's people. He says it this way, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the father knows me, And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep is one of those metaphors for the people of God. And the way that Jesus protects the people of God is by laying down his life for them. Additionally, I think Jesus is alluding to this verse in John 14 when he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus guards and protects the people of God and takes them into a place that is prepared for them, just as the angel of the Lord that we see in Exodus 23. And in Exodus 23, we see that God himself will lead the vanguard against Israel's enemies and give them all the blessings that he's promised. And so too, God has himself led the vanguard against our greatest enemy, death, and he has given to us both blessing now and the promise of eternal blessing in the future. The text here is powerfully reminding us that God is the central character in Israel's story, in the church's story, and in your story. It's all about God. It is God who saves his people. It is God who keeps his people. And it is God who guarantees blessing for his people. And God never gives up on Israel. He finishes what he starts. Paul writes of it this way in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this should be encouraging for you, friends, that God never gives up on you. And that he draws you to himself 
and will not fail to take you to where he's promised. I mean, don't forget that if you are a Christian, it's by God's grace alone. You were dead in your sins. And dead people, they don't do anything. They're dead. Despite what the funeral home would lead you to believe that the person in the uh, open casket got themselves dressed in their best outfit and put their makeup on, got their hair did. None of that happened. Dead people, they, they don't do anything. And we were dead. But God, being rich in mercy, caused you to be born again. He gave you a new heart and breathed the life of the Spirit into your chest. He made you a new creation, united to and alive with Christ. Friends, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. If you are here and you're not a Christian, I mean, this is the good news of the gospel. That God saves imperfect, broken, rebellious sinners like you and like me. He saves weak people like Israel and us. Pray that he would save you. Pray that his good work would start in you today and be brought unto completion on the last day. Now, even though we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, the reformers are right in saying that faith that saves is never alone. See, those who have experienced the grace of God are transformed. They stop following their wicked hearts and they start listening to the voice of God. This is evident in verses 21 and 22, where the Israelites are charged with living out the truth of their identity as God's people. Right, Part and parcel uh, to being a holy nation is listening to God's voice. And here, that means listening to and obeying his angel. It's another reason for us to see the angel as the pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel has the voice and authority of God. Likewise, Jesus in Matthew 28 tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth are his. And in Luke 9.35, during what we refer to as the transfiguration, God says of Jesus, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. One of the things that we see with that text and in our relationship with Jesus is that loyalty and love for God are expressed in happy submission to the words of God. Like Israel, we are called to trust and obey, to listen and believe. Because at the end of the day, what you live is what you believe. We've used this equation many times now, and I've stolen it from my ethics professor back at Southeastern, but what he used to say is you have someone's stated belief, what they say they believe, and you add that to their actual practice, how they live their life, that's going to yield to you their actual belief. And so we would say you take a stated belief plus their actual behavior, and then equals their actual belief. So for example, if John Doe uh, comes up to you and says, man, a blizzard is coming. It's going to be the worst. We're not going to have any power for about two weeks. Uh, probably won't even be able to get out of our houses for even longer. And that blizzard is coming tomorrow. If John doesn't make any preparation for the blizzard, he's either really dumb or he doesn't believe it's going to snow. Right? If he believes that the heart of winter is ready to bear down on him, he's going to make preparations, right? He's going to go to the store, stock up on some bread and some milk, some of those frozen pizzas, uh, chips, some chicken. Maybe he's going to buy a generator so he can have electricity to cook it all. 
Like maybe he's even going to buy a plane ticket to get out of town so he can miss the blizzard. But he's going to make preparation for what he believes is coming. See, belief is born out in behavior. You live what you believe. When you believe in Jesus, it changes your behavior. You don't keep on as usual. You listen to his voice. You make preparations for his return, and you bear the fruit of repentance. Friends, no one is saved by a mere profession of faith, but by the possession of faith. When faith is truly present in the heart, it necessarily, inevitably, and immediately bears fruit as good works of service to God and to neighbor. I do want to point out, before we move on, that for the Christian, this obedience is a delight. Because as God's people, we get to live from acceptance rather than for acceptance. Uh, getting ready to celebrate my sixth wedding anniversary this month, which is, you know, like a tenth of what most of you have. Uh, at any rate, I'm excited about it. But one of, the, one of the things about being married is you have committed to, you're in covenant with your spouse. And you say, I'm going to love them in as many ways as I, I can figure out to. And so sometimes, a lot of the times, that requires listening to them. So one of the ways that I, I try, and let me stress the word try, uh, to love my wife is by listening to her desires as it relates to our guest house, right? One of her things is she doesn't want me to use the guest house. Those are for guests, and they're nice and fluffy and big, and then my towel's like this raggedy beach towel. Uh, and so she doesn't want me to use the guest house, which seems simple enough but I'm not always the best listener, and I may or may not from time to time be guilty of using a guest towel. One sometimes ends up wet anyway, I don't know. Even though I, I sometimes fail in this, my status as her husband doesn't change, right? We, we're still married. But I make it my ambition to listen to her and to please her, not, not to make her my wife, but because she's my wife, right? I'm not trying to earn the status of husband, by refraining from using the guest house. I'm, I'm, going, I'm her husband either way. But I want to try to obey her in this. I want to try to listen to her desires in this because I know in doing so, she will feel more loved by me. And happy wife, happy life, that whole deal. Likewise, Christians don't try to make ourselves acceptable to God by our obedience. But instead, we obey God because we've already been accepted by him in Christ. I mean, that's the good news. Because the, the truth is, like Israel, we fail over and over again to loyally love and obey God. Yet we still triumph. We still share the triumph of God's conqueror by faith. I mean, that, that's the whole scandal of the gospel. If you see it in uh, 23, 21, I think it is, it says, He will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. The scandal of the gospel is that the punishment of no forgiveness is never carried out in the lives of Israel or in our lives as Christians. The punishment of no forgiveness is never carried out in the lives of those who have faith because Christ himself shouldered on the cross the full burden of God's punishment. He became a curse for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds you have been healed. It is because we have been accepted by faith in Christ that it is our delight to offer our lives to Christ. 
And so faith is proven in the fruit of repentance. Belief is borne out in behavior. Luther was right in saying that the whole of the Christian life is repentance. To claim to believe in Jesus and yet happily rebel against his word proves that one does not in reality truly believe in Jesus at all. I think this idea also helps us to understand that second part of verse 21 again. Where it says, he will not pardon your transgression. Pay careful attention to, his, to him. Listen to his voice. Obey his voice. Don't rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. To rebel against God's messenger is to rebel against God. No one can accept God's salvation without accepting God's Savior. I mean, I think that's easily seen in uh, Israel's relationship with Moses, their relationship with the angel of the Lord here, and our own relationship with Christ. Those who reject Jesus will not be forgiven. you got to accept Jesus to receive forgiveness of sin. Which brings us to another reason for viewing the angel of Exodus 23 as Jesus before he took on flesh. The angel has the power to forgive sin, right? Again, verse 21, he will not pardon your transgression implies that he has the power to pardon transgression, which is something that only God does. Do y'all remember the story of the paralytic in Mark 2? It's a while ago now too, but if you remember, Jesus is teaching in his home and the place is packed past capacity. You can't get in. It was standing room only, but the standing room is even filled up. Can't even get to the door. And there are a bunch of guys and they have their buddy who is paralyzed and they go, We got it, we're gonna get him into Jesus. And so they go up onto Jesus' roof and they rip out the ceiling and they, they lower him down, right? I just can't imagine to be teaching in like the roof just being ripped apart and then a dude gets lowered down. Like it must have been some weird stuff. But but Jesus, he he he's like, I'm not even mad, right? Like, I'm just impressed, actually. I'm impressed by your faith. What faith? And he says to the paralytic, son, everybody's expecting him to heal him of his paralysis. That's kind of been Jesus' thing. He heals the sick, the blind, see the deaf here, uh, the lame walk. They're expecting the lame to walk here, expecting this healing. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders are sitting around and they're rightfully concluding, that's blasphemy. I mean, it's blasphemy if Jesus isn't God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, being God, knows that they're questioning these things in, his heart, in their hearts. And in verse 8, he says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Only God has the power to forgive sin. This angel before us has the power to forgive sin. And so too does Jesus and Jesus proves that power in the healing of the paralytic. And I hope that at this point you're starting to see these blurred distinctions between Yahweh and the one he has sent his messenger, the angel of the Lord and Jesus. And why, that you're starting to go, you know what, this is a little persuasive that this is Jesus before his incarnation. But if you're not there, you can at least see that the angel is pointing us to Jesus. There's still more though. 
God says of the angel, my name is in him. The angel shares God's name, that is his nature and his character. In John 8, Jesus has a discussion with some Jewish religious leaders about Abraham, and uh, they get a little bit upset because Jesus is saying Abraham's dead, and he's also said that if you keep my words, anyone who keeps my words, they won't see death. And they're like, but Abraham's dead, how can you say that? Uh, And they actually ask him, you're not even 50 years old yet? Whoa. You're not even 50 years old yet, and uh, you've seen Abraham? And in verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, this is your all-snap moment, right? They know what Jesus has just said. And so they all go to get rocks to stone him to death, right? I don't know how Jesus gets out of that situation. The text doesn't tell us. It's just like he ghosts out or teleports or something. I, I don't know. But the point is, he's claiming that he is God. How do you know Abraham? You're not that old. Before Abraham was, I am. I mean, Exodus 3, when Moses asked God his name, right? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The messenger that God sends to his people in Exodus shares God's name, just like Jesus shares God's name, because he is God the Son, Jesus Christ, before the first Christmas. Let's look at verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve, in the sense of the word here is worship, and that's important, keep it in your mind. You shall serve, worship the Lord your God, and he, this he here refers back to the angel of the Lord in verse 21, rather than I, though if you have a new King James Version and maybe an old school one too, I'm not sure, they've tried, your well-intentioned translators have tried to smooth this out a little bit because it doesn't sound right. Um, they try to smooth it out and say, just put I there, but, but it's he, it's in the third person singular case. At any rate, you shall serve or worship the Lord your God, and he, that's the angel of the Lord, will bless your bread and your water. And then it shifts back. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. This blurring is intentional. Who's doing the healing? Who's receiving the worship? Is it the angel or is it Yahweh? And the answer is yes. We have before us the pre-incarnate Son of God. It's another signal for us here that it's Jesus before his advent. Because if this angel is trusted, he will lead God's people to victory over their enemies. He will receive worship and he will bless the people. Likewise, Jesus, if trusted, will lead his people to victory, is do worship and bless his people. The identity of the angel of the Lord being knit so closely to God makes it seem that he will receive worship. But we know from Colossians 2 that we're not to worship angels. Moreover, throughout Scripture, angels and men refuse worship. Acts 10.25 When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. In Revelation 19, verses 9 through 10, And the angel said to me, 
write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus, like the angel, receives worship. Matthew 14, 33. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew 28, 9. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Luke 19, we read. As he was going along, they were spreading their robes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. The King who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One. Hosanna in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if they keep silent, even the stones will cry out. In other words, they are worshiping me and they are doing so rightly. Jesus is due worship. He is God in the flesh. He is the God-man and he is due worship. We owe Jesus our worship and yet still, like Israel, we are enticed by idols. Peter ends comments, Israel's great temptation after entering the land was mixing with its inhabitants and assuming some or all of their religious practices. In fact, the Israelites never totally get rid of the Canaanites. And throughout the rest of their history, they kept getting ensnared by pagan deities again and again. Things would have gone much better for Israel had they simply obeyed. I mean, God could not have spelled out the need to destroy those who oppose him and their idols any more clearly. Right? He even gives them a reminder at the end of the passage in verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin and sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God requires exclusive worship. The Bible often refers to the people of God as a spouse. First, the church as the bride of Christ. And it's just, it's not okay for the bride to have a side piece, right? Adultery is betrayal. And we, like Israel, all too often play the whore. I wonder what grips your heartstrings and threatens to pull your affections away from Christ. On the flip side, what stirs your delight for Christ? I think Bible reading and prayer uh, should do this for every Christian. It should be a way of us stirring up our affections for God. I think other things do as well. Right? For some people, it is a great piece of music, a, a thrilling story, or a unique creation of art. Everybody has their own things where they see these good gifts <clears throat> that God has given to them, and it just leads them into worshiping God and giving thanks to him for those things. And there's not a blade of grass in this world that isn't meant to cause us to lift our eyes away from ourselves and up to the Lord and give thanks. All of it is aimed at increasing our joy in him. 
it will help your spiritual romance with God if you commit to doing more of whatever it is that stirs up your affections for Christ. Do what increases your joy and destroy those things which extinguish your passion for Christ. Let me give you an idea and list a few things that have been known to extinguish passion for Christians. This one made me laugh because I just can't imagine myself saying it, but too much TV. <laughs> it's the devil. It's not what I'm saying. TV's fine. You're not, not going to turn into like a mass murder or anything just because you watch TV. I like it. But too much TV, uh, like news and otherwise, has been known to numb Christians to the things that God hates and to sometimes cause Christians to hate people and things that God loves. Be careful what you watch. Uh, Albert Moeller always says, uh, you are what you consume. The greatest test of worldview is what entertains us. Does what entertains you mark you as a Christian or as a member of the world? Second thing, uh, social media threatens to extinguish the passion of Christians. I think this makes sense because comparison fuels envy and depresses people. Uh, The studies about the negative effects uh, of social media bears this out. It depresses most everyone, which, which makes sense, right? Uh, nobody posts the negative stuff on their timeline, like if you're on Facebook or on Twitter. Nobody's like, hey, you know, mistreated my kids, huge fight with my wife, slept on the couch, had a, a TV dinner last night, um, actually haven't worked out in six months, here's my selfie, uh, hashtag starting to put on the pounds. I'm miserable. Nobody puts that stuff. It's all, here is my seafood steak dinner at the world's most beautiful beach in Australia. My life is awesome. Right? And you're scrolling through that, you're going, my life isn't like this. Everyone else is happy. What's, what's wrong with me? Comparison kills joy. Comparison kills joy. And it can smother your affections for Christ. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Don't allow things to discontent you. If it discontents you, put it out. If it causes you to to want to have a, a happy life, put it out. Destroy it. Fan into flame your passion for the Lord. Uh, another example is too much of a good thing. When we let a good thing consume us, any good thing, it becomes a God thing, and that is a very bad thing. Uh, For me, I have to be careful with sports. If I allow myself to get too invested with my beloved West Virginia Mountaineers, uh, it negatively impacts my whole life. That's embarrassing to say out loud, but it's true. There have been times in my life where, you know, I've had to say, look, I can't even read my Bible right now. I'm so mad. Or, Kids, I can't play with you. I have to go into a dark room and brood for a while. A 19-year-old just dropped a touchdown pass, all right? Like my my whole life is thrown off kilter. Man, this is idolatry in me. That the performance of some teenage kids can affect my attitude. I gotta dial it back a little bit. Make sure that those things are leading me into worship of God rather than to worship of themselves. The gifts are meant to help us worship the gift giver. It might not be sports for you. We all have those idols hidden away in our lives somewhere. We need to destroy their grip on us by making them submissive to our Lord and stirring our affections with things that make us love the Lord more. 
We must be about that work of daily crucifying our flesh. John Owen's words are still true. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. If there is sin in your life that is not dead, that's deadly. The human heart is an idol factory, and we must guard ourselves against worshiping that which is not God. Now, with reference to verses 25 and 26, uh, while it is true that life works better when we live according to God's word and design, unlike Israel, that's unlike, we are not promised to be free of sickness and suffering. Riken comments, These promises were for the Old Testament people of God, given at a time when God was using material blessings to teach spiritual truths. Therefore, we need to be careful not to apply these blessings and curses too literally. Our Savior was a suffering servant, and like him we must pass through suffering to enter glory. Only then will we be delivered from hunger, pain, and death. But even if the suffering of the church may not receive the material blessings God promised to Israel, the principle still holds true. Obedience is the pathway to blessing. Even though we can't claim Israel's material blessings as our own, as much as the prosperity teachers, that's a false gospel, would like to have you believe that. Even though we can't claim Israel's material blessings as our own, we get to claim something better. Israel's Messiah. And once again, we're taught about this Messiah by the angel in these verses. The angel blesses and heals those who serve, that's worship, him. This is exactly what we see Jesus doing throughout his ministry. When John the Baptist sends him uh, a man to him to ask, is this the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Should I expect someone else? Jesus responds in Luke 7, 22, Go and report to John the things you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with skin diseases are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And anyone who is not offended by me is blessed. In Mark 8, 22 through 26, Jesus spits and he puts his hand on a blind man and restores his sight. We already talked about him making the lame walk in Mark 2. In Mark 1, verses 40 through 42, it tells the story of a cleansed leper. Then a man with a serious skin disease came to him and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. And he told him, Be made clean clean. Immediately the disease left the man and he was healed. Mark 8, 31 through 37 features Jesus speaking a kind of sign language as he identifies with a deaf man before giving him the ability to hear. In Luke 7, I, I love, this is maybe my favorite story uh, in the Gospels, Jesus sees a funeral procession uh, for a, a man who was the only son of his mother. We find out that mom is a widow and she is in mourning and Jesus just can't take it. He's moved with compassion and he, he, he comes to the woman and he says, do not weep. Then he goes over and he puts his hand where, where the boy's coffin is. He tells him to live. And the young boy obeys. The blessings we get in Christ far outweigh the material blessings promised to Israel in the Old Testament because we, the poor, have the good news of the gospel preached to us. In Christ, we inherit all that is his, all the riches of heaven. And we, like the widow, get to have Jesus wrap his arms around us in a hug and whisper in our ears, Do 
not weep. I've come to wipe every tear from the eye, to make everything sad and true. Don't cry, child. I am making all things new. We get to be like the widow in that, and we get to be like the boy who was dead and heard the voice of Christ and was made alive. Look quickly at verses 27 through 31. I will send my terror before you and will throw you into confusion. All the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. When the text says God is sending his terror before him, it doesn't mean he's giving them nightmares or anything like that. I actually think this is a fulfillment of what they sang about when they came across the Red Sea. Back in chapter 15, uh, verse 14, the people are singing this. Uh, they say the people, they're singing, and I'm going to do a poor rendition, but now the peoples have heard, they tremble. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them all. It's a song. Probably not sung like that or to that tune, but bad stuff. They're going to hear what happened in Egypt, and they are going to freak out because we're coming for them. Back to verse 28. And I will send hornets or the hornet. I have no idea what this means, right? It could be a metaphor for kind of along with the terror. He's going to freak the people out. It could be literal, and it could be many hornets, right, where they just attack the people and cause them run. I don't know. Or a literal just giant hornet. be kind of cool. I, don't, I go with the, the first uh, interpretation there, or they're probably freaking out. Either way, uh, that's not the point. Sending these things before them, and that those things are going to, verse 28, drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. And then look at verse 29 and 30. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beast multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. Uh, the language in verse 31, it's not precise, it's general. It's like saying from the coast of Maine to the coast of California, this is the area I'm about to give to you. God is going to give Israel the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham, little by little rather than all at once. And this is such an encouragement to us. It should encourage us in our own spiritual pilgrimage. Because like the Israelites, we have received salvation. We've crossed from death to life through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But we have not yet reached the promised land. Maybe better stated, uh, the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, has not yet been brought to us in its fullness. And the way to it, the journey there is long and hard. Jesus will bring the victory, but we have to stay the course. The Christian life is a process. We're not yet perfect, but being perfected. Uh, to draw on the guest towel illustration earlier, positionally, I am Chelsea's husband, which means that people should be able to say of me, he lays down his life for her. Right? Ephesians 5. But practically, I'm not always there. Lay down her life for her? Lay down my life for her? I mean, I can barely use the right towel some days. Likewise, as Christians, we are married to Jesus positionally. But practically, we are not there yet. Some days we can't even use the right towel. Some days, simple obedience is hard for us. 
point here is that we are to daily work together with God, the Holy Spirit, who works in us towards becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in Christ, which is holy. Daily we are to turn from sin towards God. Daily we must wage war against the evil in and around us. Daily we must outfit ourselves in the divine armor as we press on in our love for the Savior. Daily we must pray for and rely upon his grace and strength so that we might endure in the faith because perseverance is proof of possession. Perseverance in faith is the proof that we possess the faith in the first place. Perseverance is proof of possession. Hebrews says it this way in chapter 3, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, that's our faith, firm to the end. And in chapter 6, now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Church, endure. Persevere and live with hope because God has called you to hope. Love this verse in 1 Peter. It says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God guards his people and guarantees their triumph when they persevere in faith. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you don't have to live without hope. Jesus is your living hope, and he can give deep meaning and true satisfaction to you. If you will only trust and obey, if you will only turn from your sins and follow God's messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ, to victory, by putting your faith in him. Christian, keep loving Jesus. Persist in affectionate obedience. Stay the course, trusting that God is able to deliver on his guarantee. Be resolute in your commitment to Christ, as was Abraham, of whom it is written. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us be those who give glory to Jesus and grow strong in the faith, fully convinced that you are able to do what you've promised. Thank you for giving to us grace upon grace, calling us your own. Thank you for winning the victory over death and sin and evil and suffering for us and giving to us the encouragement that even though we might suffer for a little while in this world, that you are using even that suffering to bring about good, that you can transform suffering to serve a holy purpose, just like you've transformed us wicked, lost sinners, us bad people, into your holy people when we put our faith in your Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for these good gifts. Give us your spirit that we might endure in walking in the good works that you've prepared for us to do since the foundation of the world. Father, we love you this morning. We come before you needy, asking for your help in these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.